This is Unfilter, episode 324 for August 27th, 2020. An attack on law enforcement is an attack on all Americans. Trump's heavy-handed rhetoric fueled his campaign back in 2016. I am the law and order candidate. And four years later, I am your president of law and order. Trump now drawing a sharp distinction between his law and order record and the record of his opponent. It's a left-wing war on cops. If sleepy Joe Biden were to become president, he would immediately pass legislation to gut every single police department in America. You know that. My agenda is anti-crime and pro-cop all the way, and that's what it's got to be. Hello, friends, and welcome to 324 of the People's History Podcast. My name is Chris, and this episode, I am very excited about some personal news I have to share with you. But the show isn't about me. It's it's about the people's history. So we're not going to start with that on the podcast. But do stick around and make sure you catch what that is, which I'll get to a little bit. But so we can stick with the theme of the show, let's start with COVID-19 and possibly some good news. Isn't that a nice change? There is some hopeful news in the fight against the coronavirus. The number of reported new cases is falling. It's down to an average of 43,000 per day. Okay, that's still that's uh, that's still a lot of people. Uh, that's uh, like in the ballpark of when this show was doing at its peak. Uh, I have I honestly haven't checked it for a little bit, but that was like you know what this show would get at its peak back in the day before before the darkness, uh, the unfilter break. So you imagine an entire unfilter audiences a day of new reported cases. Reported new cases is falling. It's down to an average of 43,000 per day. Experts credit an increase in mask wearing and a better understanding of how the virus spreads. But they warn the U.S. still does not have sufficient testing. Manuel Bohorquez reports from hard-hit Florida, where the mayor of Miami-Dade County is moving ahead with a plan to allow diners back into restaurants. <laughs> Now, that's, uh, of course, something that has to get national news coverage. But there is something else that's happening in the COVID-19 space that seems like a positive development, although gross. Well, the president may have gotten a boost last night from the Food and Drug Administration, which gave doctors emergency go-ahead to use blood plasma from COVID survivors as a coronavirus treatment. Again, the head of the FDA. Let's stop here. Uh, this really bothers me. And I know I should be over it after four years of Trump being in office. But did you catch it? Did you hear did you hear the beginning of this clip? This is a story about the FDA. And it's still still they make it about Trump. It's a win for Trump, not not for patients of covid-19. It's not a win for doctors who are struggling to help their patients. No, no, it's personally a win for Donald Trump according to the media. Well, the president may have gotten a boost last night from the Food and Drug Administration, which gave doctors emergency go ahead to use blood plasma from covid survivors as a coronavirus treatment. Again, the head of the FDA announced this emergency use authorization at a White House news conference yesterday. As Mullalangi reports, the decision is exactly what the president wanted. Yeah. Yeah. So would any president in office 
A, that had people that were getting sick while he was in office. B, was running for an election. If Barack Obama was in office or Bush Sr. For, or Reagan, for, you get my point, right? And it's, it's relentless. The media operates by constantly having a boogeyman, and Trump is that boogeyman for them. I'll get into this more later, but I want you to pay attention to it now so when I play those clips later, it clicks. This and it's it's gross. This is a pandemic. People are dying every single day and they still make it about him. Yesterday, as Mullalangi reports, the decision is exactly what the president wanted. Today's action will dramatically expand access to this treatment. More than 70,000 COVID patients have already received convalescent plasma, which is taken from patients who have recovered from the virus and whose blood has the virus antibodies. A very historic breakthrough in our fight against the China virus. But just last week, top doctors at the National Institutes of Health warned the FDA against approving an emergency use authorization citing concerns that the data does not support the decision. Well, of course the data is still new. And the thing that they're they're just sort of glossing over is this is a practice that's already happening. So the FDA is kind of pressured in that way as well. But no, no, we got to make it all about Trump. I want to change gears on this, though, because something that I've been championing for a while on this show since listening to This Week in Virology and really having it click with me is rapid testing. And I've been following that for, for weeks and weeks now. And I'm starting to see some glimmers of recognition in the mainstream dialogue that this is rapid testing, a very important aspect to getting our hands on the situation, to getting life back to normal. So this is Dr. Nita Ogden, I believe it is, Dr. Nita Ogden, on on some ideas around making COVID testing essentially a a daily way of American life is sort of sell, selling it as something you do before you go into the movies, something you do before you go to class that day. Now researchers are talking about, and I think we've heard a lot about it in the news recently, rapid, almost like pregnancy tests, saliva tests uh, that you could use at home before you go to school, before you go to work, before you enter a movie theater, uh, before you enter a store. Uh, you could immediately see a result about whether you were, now the real key word here is contagious or infectious. Why? Because we know a lot of people with coronavirus are indeed asymptomatic. So these tests are trying to capture that population of people, that that day three period where you may not even really have symptoms, but you could be infectious. We know asymptomatic spread leads to up to 40 percent of uh, infections. So this type of testing would actually be able, they say, to bring the virus to heal within weeks and we'd be able to return to a sort of normal semblance of life. So she's saying there this kind of testing would bring the virus to a heel within weeks. Just think about that for a moment. Think about that. Think about the the kind of fundamental shift that would mean for society. (laughs) Like, it's a big deal. In weeks, and we'd be able to return to a sort of normal semblance of life even during a pandemic. Now, The critics of these tests say that they're not as sensitive, and that's part of the problem here. The FDA has very tight regulations around 
coronavirus testing. They want them to be 70% sensitive, uh, kind of approaching like with the PCR is 95%. But researchers feel that that's really not necessary. Even if they're 60% sensitive, we're going to capture enough of those people who are infectious, who are contagious, that we can slow transmission of the disease and go back to normal life. Now, that doesn't mean we wouldn't be wearing masks, per se, or social distancing, but there would be less of a fear of contagion, and we could have a better sense of where a classroom or a workplace stands in terms of uh, infectivity. Now, this is something that's been talked about before on the show, but maybe we're coming at it a little more clear this time. The PCR testing has a very high effective detection rate, but it's also detecting dead aspects of the virus in your bloodstream. Where the type of testing that this rapid testing is, it isn't checking for those so much as it's actually checking for the spike protein, which I'll get into in a moment with these clips. Um, And I, I think what's kind of hard when we talk about this is if you look at just the numbers the the traditional like swab up the nose PCR testing is technically a more sensitive test but the lower sensitivity with the rapid testing is countered by the fact that it could catch you when you are peak infectious when you are maybe even still asymptomatic and the rona is just racing through your blood the test in fact is able to pick up um, viral load at that highly infective time when you don't even have symptoms. Uh, whereas PCR, uh, it's it days after. It, it doesn't really share with you that because the, what I was trying to say is that this antigen, not the antigen, this test is actually looking at um, the spike protein. And that actually looks at uh, active virions, as you would say, um, not like the PCR test, which can still pick up dead genetic material. So there's a difference in what it's looking for. And because it would be rapid, it'd be almost daily, you would catch more people. So if it's starting to spread, say, in a school, you would catch more of those people quicker before they've had a chance to spread to more people. So it has it has additional benefits beyond just the hard numbers of what its sensitivity is. But there's some reasons that it's not gone into production yet. I've talked about before about sort of the established pathways of work and testing. But there's other there's other factors in play as well. And sometimes it just comes down to money. Um, but you raised a really good point about production and why we don't. So we're hearing about these tests all the time, but we're not seeing them available. Um, and in part, that's because of the billions of dollars that would be involved with manufacturing and development that these companies simply don't have. And they're really calling upon uh, a fail- the government as failing here, um, that there should have been the De- Defense Production Act should have gone into effect a while ago, where so that billions of dollars uh, could be put into the companies in the United States mass producing these tests, um, they see the lack of testing as a national security threat uh, and and treating it as like a a wartime situation, which we've heard the president talk about that. So unfortunately, the government hasn't stepped up. There hasn't been a central command situation uh, that is allowing for the mass production and use of this kind of testing, which is why it's really this kind of revolutionary thing that would have to happen uh, that simply just hasn't occurred yet. Um, I don't know, and reading about this, I, I question whether it will happen during this pandemic. Um, I hate to say that there would be another one, but it does give me hope for the future uh, about changing the landscape of testing. Uh, but I do think that there there is a problem in this country in terms of the government getting behind it. The point she's not quite connecting on there, the reason why she thinks I believe the government should get involved is because the corporations that would be manufacturing these are stuck in a chicken and the egg situation. 
if the FDA isn't going to approve them because they don't have the same technical effectiveness rate, uh, rate as PCR testing, why would you, as a business, take the risk of making any of them? If the FDA is sitting there going, eh, we're not proving that, it would be financial suicide <laughs> to go all in on it as a business. So you need somebody to change the dynamics of the situation here. And I think she thinks the Defense Production Act could be used to do that. You begin production and you begin also the process of figuring out how to properly evaluate the rapid testing. Because you can't just wait for the vaccine. You need something that you can take advantage of immediately. This week, the WHO said that they believe that people are getting reinfected in some cases. So you do you need rapid testing. If people are going to get reinfected, you just have to have we have to have something better than what we have now. What what I've definitely taken away from this pandemic is not even something like COVID-19 could get our act together uh, as countries, as leaderships and as the media. Nobody really got their act together. It got partisan. There's sides, there's narratives and there's stories and so much mis- misinformation so much partisan fighting, making everything a political stunt, and the media has enabled all of it. And now we're at, a, we're at a situation where it's a double whammy because there's also here in the United States an election going on. You may have heard about that. <laughs> and so I want to take a moment in this show to kind of break down why the media is so dysfunctional and why, as an institution, it's inherently flawed. And I hope I hope help you better understand my motivation for doing this here podcast. Now, I don't talk about Noam Chomsky much anymore. Uh, I know he triggers some of you out there, but I, I want you to swallow it and listen to a couple of, I call them almost supercuts of some of his thoughts on the media and how they manufacture consent. Because even if you've heard some of this before, you probably haven't heard it all put together like this. And I think it's pretty compelling. The public relations industry, the advertising industry, which is dedicated to creating consumers, it's a phenomenon that developed in the freest countries, in Britain and the United States. And the reason is pretty clear. It became clear by, say, a century ago that it was not going to be so easy to control the population by force. Too much freedom had been won. labor organizing, parliamentary labor parties in many countries, uh, women starting to get the franchise and so on. So you had to have other means of controlling people. And it was understood and expressed that you have to control them by control of uh, uh, beliefs and attitudes. Well, one of the best ways to control people in terms of attitudes is what the great political economist Thorstein Veblein called fabricating consumers. If you can fabricate wants, make obtaining things that are just about within your reach the essence of life, they're going to be trapped into becoming consumers. You read the business press, say, 1920s, it talks about the need to uh, direct people to the superficial things of life, like fashionable consumption, and that'll keep them out of our hair. You find this doctrine all through progressive uh, intellectual thought, like uh, Walter Lippmann, the major progressive intellectual of the 20th century. He wrote famous progressive essays on democracy, in which his view was exactly that. The public must be put in their place 
uh, so that the responsible men can make decisions without interference from the bewildered herd. There to be spectators, not participants, then you get a properly functioning democracy. Uh, straight back to Madison and on to Powell's memorandum and so on. And the uh, advertising industry just exploded uh, with, with this as its goal, fabricating consumers. And it's done with great sophistication. The ideal is what you actually see today. Where, let's say, teenage girls, if they have a free Saturday afternoon, will go walking in the shopping mall, not to the library or somewhere else. The idea is to try to control everyone, to turn the whole society into the perfect system. Perfect system would be a society based on a dyad, a pair. The pair is you and your television set, or maybe now you and the internet, in which that presents you with uh, what the proper life would be, what kind of gadgets you should have, and you spend your time and effort uh, gaining those things which you don't need and you don't want, and maybe you'll throw them away. But that's the measure of a, a decent life. What we see is in, say, advertising on television. If you've ever taken an economics course, you know that uh, markets are supposed to be based on informed consumers making rational choices. Well, if we had a system like that, a market system, uh, then a, a television ad would consist of, say, General Motors uh, putting up information saying, here's what we have for sale. That's not what a, an ad for a car is. An ad for a car is a football hero, you know, an actress, the car doing some crazy thing like uh, going up a mountain or something. Uh, the point is to create uninformed consumers who will make irrational choices. That's what advertising is all about. Uh, and when the same institutions, PR uh, system, runs elections, they do it the same way. They want to create an uninformed electorate which will make irrational choices, uh, often against their own interests. And we see it every time one of these extravaganzas take place. Uh, right after the election, uh, President Obama won an award from the advertising industry for the best marketing campaign and uh, wasn't reported here. If you go to the international business press, uh, executives were euphoric. Uh, they said, we've been selling candidates, uh, marketing candidates like, uh, you know, toothpaste ever since Reagan. And this is the greatest achievement we have. I don't usually agree with Sarah Palin, but when she mocks the, uh, what she calls the hopey, changey stuff, she's right. First of all, Obama didn't really promise anything. Uh, that's mostly illusion. You go back to the campaign rhetoric and take a look at it. There's very little discussion of policy issues, and for very good reason because public opinion on policy is sharply disconnected from what the two-party leadership and their financial backers uh, want. Policy more and more is focused on the private interests that fund the campaigns, with the public being marginalized. Yep. And so I want to continue this kind of deconstruction of how all of this is linked together by sort of doing this meta-analysis here on the show. And in this series of clips, 
Nam breaks down how major corporations set the agenda for si- for society through the media. And it's not some big grand conspiracy. It's not a bunch of people in a smoke-filled room making super sinister plans. It's simply just the nature of the beast. You write in Manufacturing Consent that it's the primary function of the mass media in the United States to mobilize public support for the special interests that dominate the government and the private sector. What are those interests? Well, if you want to understand the way any society works, ours or any other, uh, the first place to look is who makes who is in a position to make the decisions that determine the way the society functions. Societies differ, but in ours, the major decisions over what happens in the society, decisions over investment and production and distribution and so on, are in the hands of a relatively concentrated network of major corporations and conglomerates and investment firms and so on. They are also the ones who staff the major executive positions in the government, and they're the ones who own the media, and they're the ones who have to be in a position to make the decisions. They have an overwhelmingly dominant role in the way life happens, you know, what's done in the society. Within the economic system, by law and in principle, they dominate. The control over resources and the need to satisfy their interests imposes very sharp constraints on the political system and uh, the ideological system. When we talk about manufacturing of consent, whose consent is being manufactured? We, we can, to start with, there are two different groups. We can get more, into more detail. But at the first level of approximation, there's two targets for propaganda. One is what's sometimes called the political class. There's maybe 20% of the population, which is relatively educated, more or less articulate, uh, that plays some kind of role in decision-making. Uh, they're supposed to sort of participate in social life, either as managers or cultural managers, like, say, teachers and writers and so on. They're supposed to vote. They're supposed to play some role in the way economic and political and cultural life goes on. Now, their consent is crucial. It's one group that has to be deeply indoctrinated. Then there's maybe 80% of the population uh, whose main function is to follow orders and not to think, you know, and not to pay attention to anything. And they're the ones who usually pay the cost. All right. Professor Chomsky, no. Um, you outlined a model with filters that propaganda is uh, sent through. That's way to the public. Can you briefly outline those? It's basically an institutional analysis of the major media, what we call a propaganda model. We're talking primarily about the national media, those media that sort of set a general agenda that others more or less adhere to, to the extent that they even pay much attention to uh, national or international affairs. Now, the elite media are the sort of the agenda-setting media. That means the New York Times, the Washington Post, the major television channels, and so on. They set the general framework. Right. And then local media and other smaller outlets follow their tone. This lines up with everything I have ever observed doing this show. And it lines up internally with my motivations for doing this show and why I think it's so important that it is not advertiser-funded. There are some medias, some media types, where that can work. I don't think news like this, the people's history, is one of them. You know, I'm not disparaging somebody who has a tech news podcast. Uh, I think that's a different tier 
of criticalness to society. But for the people's history, I think funded by the people is critical. So I, I, I will plug patreon.com slash unfilter right here because I think maybe you understand some of my, my motivations behind doing this show and why for, since this show has restarted, I have stayed up late at night and recorded in my RV like some, some guy down in a van by his river to get the show out, even though I have got a top-of-the-line podcasting studio that I just couldn't use. But I was dedicated to getting the show on the air, and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But I want to finish why I think the mainstream media will always be off the mark in terms of main public opinion, what the real public feels about a situation. They'll always be playing towards an inherent establishment bias. So what we have in the first place is major corporations, which are parts of even bigger conglomerates. Now, like any other corporation, they, they have a product which they sell to a market. Uh, the market is advertisers, that is, other businesses. What keeps the media functioning is not the audience. They make money from their advertisers. And remember, we're talking about the elite media, so they're trying to sell uh, a good product, a product which raises advertising rates and ask your friends in the advertising industry, that means that they want to adjust their audience to the more elite and affluent audience that raises advertising rates. So what you have is institutions, corporations, big corporations, that are selling relatively privileged audiences to other businesses. Well, what point of view would you expect to come out of this? I mean, without any further assumptions, what you'd predict is that what comes out is a picture of the world, a perception of the world, that satisfies the needs and the interests and the perceptions uh, of the sellers, the buyers, and the product. Now, there are many other factors that press in the same direction. If people try to enter the system who don't have that point of view, they're likely to be excluded somewhere along the way. After all, no institution is going to happily design a mechanism to self-destruct. It's not the way institutions function. So they all work to exclude or marginalize or eliminate dissenting voices or alternative perspectives and so on because they're dysfunctional. They're dysfunctional to the institution itself. And that, I hope, gives you a little perspective. I don't think that's political there. I think that's just the way the system works, right or left. It's how the system will behave because at the scale they're producing, they have to appeal to advertisers and they're owned by these ginormous companies that can afford these outrageous salaries and the outrageous production costs. Meanwhile, your humble podcaster has been podcasting from his mobile get-out vehicle. But this week, this week it changes. This week, I am broadcasting from the Jupiter Broadcasting Studios, which is now once again mine. I am thrilled to announce that a Cloud Guru and Jupiter Broadcasting have made the mutual decision to separate and restore Jupiter Broadcasting's independent media status. This does not really change anything for Unfiltered. This is not a Jupiter Broadcasting production. I'm going to keep it an independent operation here, but it does mean I can take advantage of this space. Ha! So, I need your support more than ever. This has been something that is I've been working on for a long time. Since basically, well, for a long time. <laughs> and I would love and appreciate your support at patreon.com slash unfiltered. Truly, truly independent media. And of course, it's risky at this time, right? I mean, I am fully aware that it's during a pandemic. 
And it's during what could be a huge looming economic crisis that uh, we've only just begun to see the edges of. Advertisers are retracting, which will impact the Jupiter Broadcasting Productions. And I'm asking for people to support a show, a podcast, when things are tighter than ever for many Americans and people around the world. So I'm pretty, pretty aware of the risk, not to mention personal risk, because now I don't have health insurance. But I really believe that it's the best thing for the community. And I think a cloud guru saw that as well. That's why they, they were that's why they're willing to consider this and work with me to make this possible. It was a mutual decision. It allows us both to go in our directions, and uh, I'm grateful to them for it. And I'm super grateful for those of you who have been supporting the show. You know, I, I didn't know where this was going to go, <clears throat> but it was reassuring to know that the unfiltered community would have my back regardless. So thank you for your support. And if you've been considering it and you haven't done it yet, patreon.com slash unfiltered. And with that, on with the show. Fired up, ready to go. So the Postmaster General had to answer some questions as a follow-up to something that we covered last week. Uh, here's uh, probably what I considered to be the single most interesting line of questioning in the hearing. Will you be bringing back any mail sorting machines that have been removed uh, since you've become Postmaster General? Will any of those come back? There's no intention to do that. They're not needed, sir. So you will not bring back any processors? They're not needed, sir. Okay. The, um, I've got a, questions about independence and transparency. Uh, prior to implementing uh, the changes that you put forth in the postal system, did you discuss those changes or are there a potential impact on the November election with the president or anyone at the White House? And remind you, you're under oath. I have never spoken to the president about the Postal Service other than to congratulate me when I accepted the position. Did you speak or discuss any of these changes with Secretary Mnuchin? During the, uh, during the discussion and negotiating the, uh, the note, I told him I have a, I'm working on a plan, but I never discussed the changes that I made. I just said I'm working on a plan for, uh, uh, to, uh, to improve service and uh, uh, gain cost efficiencies. But no, no, no grave detail other than uh, that that was about it. Prior to implementing the changes, did you discuss these changes or their impact on the election with any Trump campaign officials? No, no, sir. These changes, sir. These changes in our total analysis here and going forward. And, and remember, I'm one new person in the organization with this, with, with the whole structure around me, an operating structure, an executive team around me that are involved in these decisions. Okay, and uh, we the, the having any moving forward, trying to have any negative impact on the on the election is an outrageous claim. I couldn't believe this figure when he said it in the hearing. So if anybody could maybe double check this, because I, I didn't think of doing this before the show. Uh, he said at one point that executive layer that he was referring to there. I, I can't believe this number could be possible. I have to I'd have to double check it. But he said that there are 30,000 people in the U.S. Postal Service executive layer. Is that possible? Is that is that is that is that possible? That, he must have misspoken. Ah, what? I mean, uh, bruh, no. 30,000 middle management? 
Wow. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. I could not imagine that. Um, I got another story that I just think we should touch on from time to time. If you have a good memory, you might remember two years ago, I covered almost an identical story. The U.S. sends a spy plane over the, let's see, what's the way to put this? Um, disputed zone. <laughs> the disputed zone of the uh, uh, South China Sea. And the plane that goes isn't just like, uh, a, you know, a regular old jet or a fighter jet or or maybe like something brand new that you know people don't really know about. It's a U-2 spy plane. The most definitive kind of character spy plane possible with a huge history. Uh, and that's what they send to the South China Sea. They don't mention that here in this clip, but the, the details of this I think are worth tracking. I don't have a lot more to add to it, but I think they're worth us following. Final preparations before takeoff. Rare footage of a U.S. Navy air crew flying a mission over the South China Sea last week. We got one antenna tower right there, you see that? This aircraft bristles with high power scopes to conduct surveillance. We're serving as those eyes and ears, patrolling ahead of the force, closely monitoring our adversaries. The adversary here is China. And it's not long before a Chinese voice calls out over the radio and tells the U.S. plane to leave. I witnessed similar challenges two years ago on a different U.S. Navy flight over this increasingly tense region. At least seven different governments have competing claims to parts of the South China Sea. But Beijing claims virtually all of this sea for itself. To cement its claim, China embarked on a massive island-building project, constructing runways and radar stations on what had been reefs and atolls. Last month, the Trump administration declared Beijing's position illegal. We rejected China's unlawful claims in the South China Sea once and for all. The Defense Department says it has stepped up deploying warships and planes on what it calls freedom of navigation operations through the sea, prompting Beijing's top diplomat to accuse the U.S. military of trying to destabilize the region. In the first half of this year alone, the U.S. sent military aircraft back more than 2,000 times. 2,000 times. Yeah, I think, I think maybe they're trying to poke China a little bit. It just seems to be escalating since the last time we talked about it. And uh, you got to wonder where it's going to go, where it's going to lead. I'd like to know your thoughts on it on filter.show slash discord. Now, the story that made me chuckle the most had to be Steve Banning, Steve Bannon uh, getting his hand caught in the cookie jar. <laughs> President Trump, meanwhile, campaigned in Pennsylvania yesterday. On the same day, another of his former close associates was put in handcuffs. Former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon was arrested on fraud charges over an alleged scheme connected to the president's long-promised border wall. He was later released on a $5 million bond. Paula Reed is following all of this from the White House. As he left federal court in Manhattan, Steve Bannon suggested the Trump Justice Department's case against him is a setup. It's to stop people who want to build the walls, what he's claiming. Nah. <laughs> I mean, like, they seriously have him here, like text messages about the scam and all of it. It's it's like um, it's like this. Uh, it's like they just can't help themselves. 
And you don't, which, when you look at things like Manafort and you look at um, Bannon, I I take away from it that it's so commonplace that they just operate like they're not going to get caught because typically the cl- the DC class just gets away with this stuff. This little grifting off the top is the perk of working in show business for ugly people, a.k.a. politics. Taking a little grift here and there is the actual reason you get in the game. It's why you build power. It's why you network. And so it's just sort of the standard operating procedure. And then every now and then, somebody decides to take a look at what's going on for some reason. Maybe you pissed the wrong person off. Maybe you said something to the wrong person. Maybe you're just a son of a bitch. And they come after you. And then these then these these narcissists are shocked. How could oh this is an effort to stop the wall bullshit. It's it's an effort to stop you grifting from selling people a hope and a lie. The whole thing's embarrassing. Like they started taking money as if they could just write the government a check and tell them to use it to build the wall as if that works. So then they had to come up with this cockamamie scheme that involved roping in people with reputations that have now been tarnished. The entire thing's embarrassing. And they're going to just really run them through the ringer. And every time somebody talks about Steve Bannon, they'll preface that discussion with something about Trump. It's obnoxious. Speaking of obnoxious. Okay, let's talk about the Republican National Convention. After I watched the Democrats, I thought to myself, well, I think the Republicans will probably top this. Because, you know, what you got from the Democrats was... The old guard, the old establishment guard, the guys that have been around and the gals that are now around forever. <clears throat> you know, your 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 Biden's type type friends, the, the Clintons, the people that were the old face of the party, not new faces, or even like even though you might not consider Bernie to be new by any stretch, he's sort of got that new media thing. It's just like AOC. He's kind of got that. The people, the progressives online kind of vibe, like they're kind of celebrities. They kind of, they kind of generate buzz. Anything they say generates a lot of buzz, but not them, not them. No, instead we, we had Kasich and and it was all felt like it was over zoom. Didn't really, didn't really click for me. So I thought for sure the Republicans are going to come in and and they're going to blow it away. Well, they may have done better production. I may give them that, but what I saw didn't reflect the Republican party. It reflected people who are nice to Trump, Trump's cronies and his and his family. And while aspects of it were a little better produced, it was sometimes just all kind of a mixed bag. And it it definitely had some moments that were that were high energy. I mean, you might say way too high energy. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. Yeah, Junior's girlfriend there was way, way over the top. I tuned in with the wife and we looked at each other and our jaws were dropped. Like, what are we seeing? Online people were joking about turning off the TV and still hearing her. It was weird and intense. Having Trump's family up there also is weird. None of them are particularly presentable. They all have weird quirks, except for Ivanka. And so it's, it's uncomfortable to watch them. And going into this, 
you know it's really going to be about positioning Trump as this really caring, giving person, and the media is not going to have it. And before it even started, they were talking about how they were going to have to start fact-checking it in real time, something they never did for the DNC. And the television networks are going to have interesting choices to make, interesting decisions to make about whether to cut away if there's this stream of disinformation happening live. Now, I can tell you, uh, Daniel Dale, CNN's fact checker, he will be standing by. I think you will see him in prime time here on CNN providing fact checks when necessary. So this is something they never did for the Democrats. Now, he says there because it's a stream of lies. I, I would counter that with all politicians lie and they all are spinning a narrative. You know, if you listen by what the Democrats are saying, like we'd all be over COVID already. The, they would have locked everybody down, but at the same time, the economy wouldn't be destroyed. And of course, you know, Biden would unify everyone and government would be more functional. Is any of that true? Has he demonstrated that at all in the last 47 years? Right. But it's not it's not necessarily about reality. It's about the narrative they're spinning. That's what the week of DNC broadcast was all about. Stating their position, drawing their lines and building their narrative. That's what the function of that broadcast is, just like it is for the RNC. But CNN and MSNBC didn't find it necessary to live fact check those. But I also think we're going to see uh, asymmetry in the way Fox covers the convention, right? The 9 p.m. hour, Hannity was live during the Democrats, not really showing the Democratic convention. I suspect he will show a lot more of the Republican convention. He doesn't mention that nearly every daily press briefing that Trump does, CNN does not cover it live. They don't cover it live. He also doesn't mention that MSNBC and CNN fawned and fawned and fawned over Michelle Obama or Obama's speech or or Kamala, Kamala's or, or Joe's. Like every time somebody had a speech, they would cut back to the panel and the panel would gush to the point where it would make you sick to your stomach to watch it. Like you'd eaten something so sweet it made you sick to your stomach. Interestingly enough, Fox News hasn't done that. Now, I'm not trying to I'm not. I'm not a Fox News fan. I'm not trying to defend or anything. Just simmer down. Simmer down. Jesus. I'm just saying, ex with the exception of like a segment on um, what's that? Um, Fox and Friends or on Hannity, they're not spending 20% of their broadcast fawning. They're just running the RNC and the DNC as it is. They're just running it. All right here was the scene on Fox when uh, CNN and MSNBC were showing the Democratic campaign ads. And look, I get it. They were campaign ads. Yeah, OK. They did cut away while the ads were running. That's true. That is that is true. When uh, CNN and MSNBC were showing the Democratic campaign ads. And look, huh. Why would. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. That's funny. Here was the scene on Fox when uh, CNN and MSNBC were showing the Democratic campaign ads. And look, I get it. They were campaign ads. Uh, but there's an asymmetry in the political universe. And sometimes it's called asymmetrical polarization, where there's more extreme behavior going on on the right than on the left. There is an asymmetry in our media as well, where Fox is off there on the right uh, in ways that the other networks are not in the middle or on the left. And what we are seeing currently in our political system in America is asymmetrical lying, where one side does it a whole lot more than the other, where one leader and his followers mislead the public a lot more than the other side. And if we don't tell that story truthfully and honestly, then we're part of the problem. It's kind of remarkable, the cognitive dissonance that's happening in that clip. While he's positioning Fox as doing these things, he, he is doing those very things. 
And in order to call Fox as super right, then you would have to sort of inherently be standing in the super left position because it's from your perspective that they're very far right. So it's it's this sort of twisted. They are what we say. We, we are what we say they are kind of thinking that's happening there. Now, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. They, they did break in. They did the fact covering. They did the fact checking, as it were. Certainly a wide variety of speakers tonight. I want to find out uh, how much they diverge from the facts. Our fact checker, Daniel Dale, joins us. Jan- Daniel, what stood out to you tonight? And they don't, of course, really have anything particularly egregious. There's things here and there that, of course, are not true, just like if you were to fact check everything that happened from the DNC. Eventually, though, they really got themselves into a groove, a unified fervor around the abuse of norms, the destruction of norms at the RNC. I can't break down all of the norms that were broken this evening because every single person involved was breaking every single halfway decent norm about American politics that we know. Now, here's essentially a little sprinkling of ABC, NBC, CNN, MSNBC and CBS. There's yet another norm uh, that this president has busted. We have another norm, another tradition destroyed showcasing the trump presidency and shattering norms if he's going to obliterate our norms we have to obliterate him at the polls trampling all of the norms that we're used to they have been breaking norms since they got into office president is shattering norms even if it is flouting the norms smashing political norms there are also norms and traditions break with norms destroying another norm to break prior norms so it's just another norm being broken as donald trump breaks these norms of governance more airtime tonight and breaking more norms and that norm has been violated like so many others and the winner and the winner and the winner, and the winner. You're in my house. You're in my house. Hey, you're in my house. Come on, come on, come on. Okay, oh, oh, okay. I'm just gonna wait till we get this done. When you drink, you drink the booze. My house. I am getting, I am getting. I'm just gonna take to somebody down. Take you out. You know what I'm saying? Picture a scenario where after one of the nights of the RNC, um, Melania was interviewed or somebody associated with Trump was interviewed and they said, whatever you do, imagine this seriously for a second. Somebody associated directly with Trump, maybe it's Kellyanne Conway on her way out the door. She says, imagine for a moment it's November 3rd. It's election night. We must contest the vote. If Donald Trump doesn't win, we must contest the vote. We must fight. We must engage every lawyer. We must never concede the election. We must fight for Donald Trump. Imagine that scenario for a moment. The media would have exploded. It would have been the top story. It would have caused an eruption of outrageous claims about the destruction of our democracy another norm being busted. And yet, and yet, the media doesn't seem to care every time Hillary Clinton does it. This is a big organizational challenge, but at least we know more about what they're going to do. And, you know, Joe Biden should not concede under any circumstances because I think this is going to drag out. And eventually, I do believe he will win if... We don't give an inch. Now, imagine for a moment that coming from the other side, even a whiff and a sniff, like if if Trump makes a, a statement in one of his rambling conventions, 
The media will go into overdrive for the weekend. In fact, here's a clip where a CBS reporter spent three fucking days looking into what happens if Trump doesn't accept the results of the election and then reports on it. Well, I spent the past few days talking to constitutional law scholars and election experts. Uh, and what I found is that the president can uh, challenge the results legally, and we'll kind of get into that. Uh, but if the results are confirmed, um, he has to leave. Uh, the 20th Amendment says that your term is up on January 20th. Uh, the new president takes over. Uh, our CBS News legal analyst, Jonathan Turley, told me that, um, you know, if if once the new president is inaugurated, the Secret Service is a, a, assigned to that president. Uh, and if someone uh, remains in the White House, they are an unwelcomed guest and uh, they can be escorted out. Uh, but what's at issue here is not necessarily whether the president would refuse to leave. It's whether he would accept the results and perhaps challenge them. And it's really important because uh, the peaceful transition of power is not only uh, dictated by the 20th Amendment, it's also a important tradition in this country. No matter how bitter these campaigns are, and they've been increasingly partisan and really rough, uh, that on January 20th, the new president takes over and the power is transferred peacefully and the country moves on. And that's really a hallmark of our democracy. Um, but because we have uh, a lot of questions being raised about what this election might look like in a pandemic, we're going to see an increase in mail-in voting. States are already scaling up as we've talked about. Uh, there are going to be a lot of people wanting to vote by mail instead of showing up to uh, polling locations because of fears of, of coronavirus. Uh, and so what you have is President Trump consistently disparaging mail-in voting and raising questions about the legitimacy of the results. And that's why these questions are being raised. And it's important to note that he is not committing either way to acknowledge the results. They go full on, full on. For one side, but not the other side. And it's in these ways where they show their bias. So that's why people will call it, oh, that's the liberal media for you. Uh, no, not really. <laughs> I'm sorry. Call them the establishment media. Okay? That's what they are. Is their mouthpieces for the people that own this place. That's who they are. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. Now, as for the event itself, kind of meh. You know, I watched this RNC event and I thought to myself, I can't believe they couldn't do better. You know, like it's like neither side really tried this year that much. And we are left with two bad choices, two very old men who are past their prime. And data shows older presidents are not nearly as active and engaged as younger presidents. There's actual data on that because they have the presidential schedules. So it's not a great choice. If Trump gets elected, he'll continue, to, he'll continue to agitate the body of politics like he has. The body will continue to reject this foreign object and try to expel him. If Biden wins, we'll, we'll constantly, constantly be questioning his mental status. We'll constantly be questioning who's really running the scene. We'll have to watch somebody decline and fade in front of us at a national scale. It could end up being an embarrassment on the world stage. And we're lucky if this, if this choice is clean. It's sounding right now like it's more likely going to be a messy election. So on top of it being a horrible choice, it's probably going to be a very messy election where we sit around waiting to find out what happened. 
in 2020. And and like I, I listened to Trump's speech at the RNC thinking, all right, this is your chance to, to tell me something new. But of course, it was the same thing you, you hear essentially every day in his daily briefings and to every convention, every speech he does at any event. It's, it's always these same points. The other thing I've done, aside from very strongly protecting your Second Amendment, which was not easy, that was not easy. And by the way, they will take your guns away as sure as you're standing or sitting there. They will take your guns away. Either that or obliterate the Second Amendment. The right to bear arms. You have the right to bear arms, especially when you look at a Portland and you see how, the, how weak those Democrats are. The governor, the mayor, how pathetic. They let them riot every night. We're saying, let us come in and solve your problem. We will solve it for you in one hour, just like we did in Minneapolis, Minnesota, right? Five nights, six nights. They have to ask us in. Let us come in. We'll solve your problem. They, they're almost used to it. This is the way our whole country would be if you ever let a thing like this happen. Our whole country would be. So this thing's very much a Trump party is what it was. Uh, a lot of his kids were up there. Um, you know, it's too much of his family, too much of the cronies. And one interesting thing was the, well, two interesting things, I suppose. Uh, the pardon that Trump did from the White House, traditionally, you don't involve the White House in these political activities. And having his good buddy, loyal Mike Pompeo do a speech and um, old Mike was on a trip for the state department. Now he claims he did it on his off time and didn't involve any state department staff. However, he's staying in a hotel paid by the state department. He flew there on a flight paid by the state department and his security is being paid for while he's doing this. And he probably didn't drive himself there. He probably didn't book the event himself. He probably didn't do any of that work himself. So as you would expect in this day and age, there's going to be an investigation. President Trump breaking with tradition, using the full trappings of the White House during night two of the RNC. Among the events airing during primetime, a surprise presidential pardon of a reformed bank robber and a naturalization ceremony for five flag-waving immigrants. And how's this for a backdrop? The newly renovated Rose Garden setting the stage for a speech by the First Lady Melania Trump. Another norm breaker, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo addressing the convention, speaking from Jerusalem. All this has critics accusing the Trump administration of violating the Hatch Act, which bars employees of the executive branch from taking part in political activities. House Democrats already opening an investigation into Pompeo's speech. Congressman Joaquin Castro, who chairs the House Foreign Affairs Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee, saying in a statement, quote, this action is part of a pattern of politicization of U.S. foreign policy for which President Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives. <laughs> that undermines America's standing in the world. The American people deserve a full investigation. Trey Gowdy. I'm you know, I'd, I'd let Trey go, but we don't we don't need to keep going. Um, four more years of that sounds a little exhausting. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I don't really, I don't really want them doing more investigations. Uh, although I'm sure that's just the political tool that, it, you know, it's just, they'll always, whoever's in power will be using that particular political tool. I hope you found this content fascinating. I know the media stuff was a little outside our normal, 
uh, news lineup, but I'd like to do that from time to time, kind of do analysis on some subjects. Also, deep dives into like historical context. I'd appreciate all of that. Um, I, I realized I missed an opportunity around the death of George Floyd on some historical reactions to figures who, well, you know what? Maybe I'll make a segment out of it now that I think about it. I was going to give it to you right now. But I realized that there's been times recently where we could have gone deeper into history and I missed an opportunity there. So I'd like your suggestions. You can get a hold of me on the Discord at unfilter.show slash Discord or the email unfilter.show slash contact. And that'll send to my Proton mailbox. How about that? Oh, a reminder that if you do become a patron or if you're already a patron, there is the real-time breakdown of the United States of Conspiracy, a frontline special that uh, tries to recast conspiracy theorists as all Alex Jones followers and uh, tries to appropriate the term false flag. We're not having that. Not having that. Not having it here. Well, I have to say, it's much easier to do this show when you have one, two, three, four, five screens in front of you instead of doing it all from one laptop in the corner of the RV. Now I'm gonna now I'm gonna reclaim my time slash space in the RV. It's pretty great. Of course, if you haven't listened to Linux Unplugged for the full announcement and other changes, which I think are great, do check out the most recent episode of Linux Unplugged where we make the announcement, some old friends join us, and details are shared. You can get that at linuxunplugged.com slash 368. And of course, you can always ask me questions and whatnot on the Discord. I'm usually on there every single day for little bits here and there. Or on the new Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix server, too. I'm over there as well. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of the Unfiltered Program. If you can't support us financially, I would ask that perhaps you consider sharing this podcast with somebody you think would find it interesting. Don't try to convert anybody. Just maybe suggest to somebody who you think would be inclined that they check out the Unfilter show. Word of mouth is the number one form of advertising for podcasts. So it really does make a difference. That and reviews. Thanks so much. See you next week. Mommy needs a joint. You sound like you're on heroin or something. What?